Well, I hope everyone uh, had a, 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 a wonderful Thanksgiving um, holiday as we sort of wrap up this weekend and you all get excited to go back to work. Um, we definitely know that the, the reason behind the Thanksgiving holiday is no longer the, the same place of Thanksgiving like it was, once was, the, the thankfulness over the harvest that was, uh, that was produced and which would be the means of survival for the winter. This is a custom that goes way back um, centuries and centuries in, 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 in Europe, but still here today, it, it is that one time of year that, uh, we in America sort of take pause in the midst of all of our stuff and, um, we are to be thankful, uh, in our current culture. I truly, ever since I was a child, I always, I'm just a guy that thinks weird thoughts. And I always sat around thinking like a day of Thanksgiving is just sort of a bizarre concept. Um, because even as a child, I'd be like, to be, what is to be thankful? It's not just a day on the calendar. It's not an event. It's not uh, a, a family gathering or a meal. It's really an attitude or a lifestyle, okay? To be thankful, it is an attitude. It is a lifestyle. And the Bible has a lot to say to believers in regard to being uh, people of of thankfulness, of thanksgiving. Psalm 107.1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to him, he is good, because his love will endure forever. Philippians 4.6, Paul says, Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Psalm 104.4, Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Called to bless his name, Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, whatever you do, Christian, in word and in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, always giving thanks to God the Father through Christ your Savior. And Psalm uh, 30.12. That my glory may sing your praises and not be silent. Oh my God, I will give thanks to you forever. And as a believer, this is really something that we have to contemplate, that we have to focus on on a regular basis, not just on Sunday morning, because we are called to this. And for me personally, the last few years, there's so many verses that speak to this heart and what the believer is supposed to have that truly identifies us as people not of this world, as people that are not, this is not the kingdom that we belong to. That heart of thanksgiving and contentment is what truly sets us apart from society. In the last couple of years, there are a few, two verses in particular that I have meditated on a lot and, 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 and rolled through in order to be anchored in the proper perspective, the proper perspective of Christ. The first one is 1 Thessalonians 5.18. It gives, gives it says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And Ephesians 5.20, give thanks always for everything um, to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believer, if I ask you, if you are in Christ and I say to you, do you want to do the will of God? What should your response be? Yes. And it's pretty clear what we are supposed to be like. These two verses are very straightforward. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks always in all circumstances. Not just some circumstances, but all circumstances. Why? Because that is the will of God for the believer, the one that is found in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 5.20, give thanks always 
and for everything, for everything. It's all about the right perspective. And I don't think we can escape this one in Ephesians 5.20. The Greek word used for always is always. And the Greek word used for everything really translates more like all things. So there's no escaping it. We can't play with the language and say that there's times where no matter what we are going through, this is what we're called to. This is what will set us apart from everyone. This is what's going to give us the peace and contentment that we need. We are anchored in Christ. We are anchored in Christ. The storm comes. Hardship, difficulty, things, the emotions flow. But emotions are feelings. And feelings are deceiving. And we literally need to peel these things back, folks, and remember what is at the core, what is at the center. We are anchored in Christ. Do not let ourselves be swept away by the difficulties of this life emotionally. We are anchored in Christ. And through that, we can always say, as that song said, it is well with my soul. Now, I know you're sitting here saying, well, that's easier said or in the Bible read than done. Yeah. And that is the truth. If as a believer, we approach our circumstances in life, the all things in an incorrect perspective, it is all about the perspective that we approach things. How many of you have maybe not this last Thanksgiving, but one of the Thanksgiving sort of sat around the table and I'm not putting it down and you go around the table and everybody says something they're thankful for. You ever done that before? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I've done that before. And kind of things you'll hear generally from people. Thankful for the spouse, kids, family, friends, finances, health, job, possessions, time, all of these kind of things. But see, here's the thing. Even though these things are important and they are special, and we should be thankful for them, all of these things are things that can change. They're fleeting. They're transitory, okay? I'm not trying to be a downer here, okay? Some, sometimes people think, ah, oh, you're, you're being a downer. No, I'm more like, you gotta get to the, you gotta get to the coral of the whole thing, folks. I'm not trying to be a downer. But if, if your state, if you state that your joy, your thankfulness are built on the things around you, even though they may be wonderful and truly a blessing, you will not be capable of truly giving thanks always in all circumstances. And that's why I selected the passage that I did today for us to study. These are the words of our Savior, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he clearly lays out, he clearly lays out why for the believer it is well with our soul, no matter what is going down around us. Now, before we get into God's word, I want to sort of give you the setting here. We're in the book of John, chapter 14, It's going to be, we're going to look at verses one through six. Here we are at a place right now that Jesus is with the disciples in the upper room um, on the evening uh, uh, before he is crucified. He's there with 11 of the disciples. Uh, Judas has already uh, taken off to betray him, uh, except for John and, and possibly Peter. Um, The others didn't know yet who the betrayer was. Okay. But they were troubled. The disciples were troubled by the news that one of the 12 would actually betray Christ. Okay. It's also important to note that the Lord had just done a discussion and an announcement that he was going to be leaving them and that they could not follow. Remember, he's talking to a group of men who had left their jobs, who had most likely left their families to follow Jesus in the hope of the promised Messiah. 
Just the day before, the men were completely ecstatic as, as uh, a few days earlier, excuse me, they were completely ecstatic as they, they came into Jerusalem and Jesus rode into Jerusalem to the cheering crowds of that city. But now here, where we're picking this up, they're in the upper room and Jesus is talking about his, his death, not about his uh, messianic kingdom here on earth. And to top it off, Jesus had just told Peter, so imagine what's running through his head, that uh, before daybreak, he would betray him three times. And so Christ has an emphasis here in chapter 14, not just the verses we're covering today. He has an emphasis in this chapter to comfort the troubled hearts of his disciples. Bring them comfort, set their thinking straight, so that no matter what is troubling them, they're attached to the core truth. Especially Christ doing this, especially knowing that he would be um, hung on a cross and brutally murdered the next day. So, here's my prayer for this as I was preparing this. Here's my prayer. If Jesus Christ is not your Savior, my prayer leading into this sermon today is that the Holy Spirit will awaken you to the truth of Christ. The truth of who he is, what he has done, and all that is found within him. And if you're already a disciple of Christ, my prayer for this sermon has been the fact that you will apply the words from this text to truly comfort the troubled heart. Comfort the troubled heart in the time of difficulty when our emotions create this feeling that we are being swept out to sea, which is not true. We need to be anchored in Christ continuously and focusing on that so that we can truly be people that are thankful and content in a world filled with challenges. And it will be to the glory of Christ and to the comfort of our soul. So let's read this morning the passage, John 14, 1 through 6. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in me. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have not told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive to you myself that where I am, there you also will be. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Then Thomas. Thomas said to him, Lord, We do not know where you are going and how can we get the way, excuse me, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, someone might go, well, this isn't a typical, if the title of this is why we can be thankful. This isn't the typical uh, verse that we would study or passage that we would study. But folks, this is the thing. It is what we deal with here with Christ's words that truly is the anchor to what puts us in that place that we can be thankful at all times in all circumstance, okay? Jesus tells us in this passage that he, this passage, that he is the provision for all that we need. And because of this, we have more than enough in Christ to always be thankful regardless of what we are going through. So let's look at this, and this is important. We're going to break these four things down that Christ lays out. We're going to look at the four things that Jesus provides his followers, the believers, which is at the core what we should be anchored to and not deceived by our emotions and our feelings with what's going on around us. The first thing Christ brings up is in verse 1, that Christ, to his followers, he provides peace. The disciples were totally disturbed at this moment as we sort of talked about and so 
Jesus looked at them with a tenderheartedness and he says to them, let your hearts not be troubled. The tense here means stop. Stop letting your hearts be troubled. Well, that's easier said than done when someone says, stop, don't be troubled. How can I not be troubled? The Lord's going to explain it to him. Okay. The literally it's an indication here. These guys must have been freaking out. They must have been falling apart. Troubled, literally, the Greek translation is that they were stirred up, tied up in a knot. And you all know that anxiety and worry feeling. This is what the disciples have going on at this moment. Okay. In the second half of, of verse one, Jesus makes an important statement to start this whole thing off of why they should not be troubled. And he makes a statement about his deity. He makes a statement about being God. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying something like this. You trust in God who is invisible. Now it's time. Now it's time to trust in me, even though I will be leaving you for a while. And they don't understand that yet, but they soon will. Later in the same chapter, chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says this. Peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Same theme. Peace I give. Okay, peace I leave, not the peace of the world. Okay, the peace of the world, there is no such thing. It's a feeling. I'm happy. But happy is a feeling. What happens to happy? Happy, sad, happy, sad, happy, sad. Peace is a place and it is a focus. Okay, it is a contentment in Christ. I love how Paul states this, Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Do you reflect on the anchor of Christ that gives you a peace that surpasses the world's understanding in our time of difficulty? Do you? It literally should surpass all understanding because of what we have in Christ. The only way to have peace in the midst of troubles is through Christ is through Christ, is focusing on his glorious nature, knowing that that he is the sovereign, the Lord of lords, the king of kings. Now, it's very important to, to, to note this, okay? It is very important to note this. The peace that Jesus is talking about here are only for those that are saved by grace through faith. They are the only ones that will... Uh, possess this peace that surpasses under uh, all understanding. Think of it this way. One must have peace with God. Peace with God. Okay, that is literally forgiveness, salvation, and true repentance. One must have peace with God before they can have the peace of God. See, if you're a believer, you're no longer an enemy of the Lord through Jesus Christ. He bridged that chasm by the payment on the cross for our sins, the blood that was shed and the the resurrection that proved he is God, he is deity, he is Lord, and death has been conquered through him. We must confess that, we must believe that in order to have peace with him. Otherwise, we're an enemy. And once we have peace with him, we have the peace of God. Do you, believer, do you focus on that? Do you focus on what a privilege it is to have that peace through Jesus Christ? Do we let that be 
which conquers and covers our emotions. The second thing that uh, Christ mentions here that sh- the believer's hearts should be filled with thanksgiving is that uh, there is a place. There is a place for everyone. What does this mean? Well, it means for those that knew Christ, death is not some, some eerie journey to an unknown destination. Believers are assured that there is a place, an eternal place, specifically set aside for them. Okay, the Greek word here, mansions or rooms that are used, means basically to, to, uh, to abide in. It's a, it's to abide or to remain in. There is a spot for you to abide or remain in. And it refers to something that is, that is permanent, not temporary. There is a permanent spot for you, Jesus is saying to the believer. There is a spot for you. There is a reservation and there is a place. Okay. And that's really sort of an unfathomable thing. Cause if you think about it, is there anything in this physical life that is permanent? Death and taxes? I mean, you know, I mean, n- nothing. Someone says, I guarantee it, or that's permanent, and we sort of take it with eh, a grain of salt. But Christ says, I, there is a place. There is a place for you, a permanent place for you. See, folks often think of it, think of it, 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 it a strange way of the everlasting. People often think that we are in the land of the living and, and that when we die, we go to the land of the dead, but that's just the opposite for the believer. For those that are in Christ, it is the opposite. We are literally in the land of the dying because of sin. We exist today in the land of the dying. And when our life is over here, those who are in Christ, we are transformed to the land of the living, a place of eternal joy, just unfathomable. One might ask, well, what about those that do not, have not put their faith in, in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Well, for those not in Christ, they are also transformed to a place, the Bible states, okay? They are transformed to a place, an eternal place. No redos, no second chances, okay? But not an eternal place in glory, not an eternal place in peace, but rather an eternal place in which the punishment for their sins is carried out. When Jesus said that he is going ahead, I am going to a, I am going and I am preparing a place for you. He was drawing on familiar language that was used in those days. And his disciples knew what he was talking about. It was customary if there was going to be a group of travelers that you would send someone ahead to make arrangements, whether it be for staying or for eating, whatever it, it, it may be. They went ahead to make the arrangements. Well, the exact same thing had happened with these disciples. Jesus had sent a couple of the disciples ahead to find and prepare the upper room for their coming and their gathering. Go ahead and make the arrangements, guys. Christ is using the same language here that he used with the disciples to go ahead and prepare a place. I am going ahead. I am making the arrangements and I will be ready for you. Jesus said there's a place for those who believe in him. And he stated it another way in John 12, 26. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, true believer. And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Where is Jesus right now? Biblically speaking, where is he? Bingo. Right hand side. So if Jesus is there, Now you have to understand the kingdom. We're there. Reservation made, dialed in, ready to roll. Where I am, you will be. Is that something that should bring us comfort and a heart of thanksgiving in the midst of all of our struggles? 
man, this stinks. This is hard. (gasps) And I already have that kingdom placed in me. And Christ will talk more about that here. Paul phrases it this way. Second Timothy 2.11. It's a trustworthy statement. For if we died in him, we will also live in him. If we died to sin, we now live in him. It isn't. This is the awesome thing, folks. It's not, oh, the Eeyore thing of one day I'll be with the Lord and it'll all be okay. We live in him right now. And he's going to talk about that. We live in him right now. It's not the perfect kingdom, but it has started now. The next thing he tells the fathers here, gives a promise that should give us hearts of thanksgiving, is he makes a pledge to them. Okay, he makes a pledge. Verse three again. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. Jesus is saying, I'm not just going to show you the way. I'm not going to show you to the way to the place I've prepared or just give you a map. I promise to come back to take you to the place so that you can be with me forever. Your final home. I'm not just going to give you a map. I'm not just going to give you some directions. I'm going to prepare and I will come and I will retrieve you. Jesus reinforces this promise uh, later here in the chapter, John uh, chapter 14, verse 18. I love how he says this. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come and get you. Have you ever had that incorrect emotion that you feel like you're an orphan? Anybody? Or am I the only one when you're going through hardship, you're going through trouble and you're like, Lord, what's up? Am I not your child? Well, if you guys all got it together, see me after I could use your help. Okay. But the promise is so true. You're not an orphan. You're not an orphan, says God's word. I am with you. I will be with you. I will come and get you. You are mine. Some additional cultural context is important here when he, when he talks about this and, and talks about the rooms. When a son uh, wanted to get married at this time, um, he, would add, uh, he and his father would add a room on uh, to, the, to the father's house. And uh, when the addition was finished, the son would go get his uh, wedding bride and then they would move into the room that was prepared for them. Likewise, Jesus is preparing a room for his bride. Who's his bride? The church. They understand the figurative language that he's using. He is preparing a room for his bride, the church. Okay, He will gather us and he will bring us to the Father. Prepared and ready, his precious bride. Jesus guarantees that we put, if we put our faith in him, we will be with him forever. This is a promise dialed in, locked in a pledge that is given by God himself. The Bible is full of promises of God and not one of them has ever been broken. Psalm 145, 13, the Lord is faithful to all of his promises and loving towards all he has made. So up to this point here, Jesus has um, told his disciples, trust his peace to find the rest that we need. He said, focus on the right place. Focus on the place, heaven, the place that he has prepared for us. And then he also has just said, never forget my pledge. Never forget my promise. It's prepared and ready and I'm coming to get you. And the fourth thing that Jesus uh, gives us that should truly make us these, these vessels of thanksgiving each and every day is that there's a divine plan. There's a divine plan. Look at verse four. And you know the way to where I am going. <laughs> I love Thomas. Hey man, at least Thomas says stuff. You know what I'm saying? It's like, 
I'd be, I would be more like Thomas. I'm doubting Thomas. I'm like, where are you going, man? I don't know the way. Okay, help me out here. Okay, he literally says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And in essence, Lord, I don't know the way. Trusting that Christ will respond. Jesus answers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When Jesus uses the phrase, I am, once again, putting it in the correct context, he is using the I am that was used by God in Exodus 3.14. He is identifying himself as Yahweh, God, I am. They're going, oh, back into the right perspective, y'all. Set them, set them straight. When Jesus says, I am, he is saying, I am God in human flesh. That is, biblically speaking, I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life, our passage today, the vine, the alpha and omega, and the resurrection and the life. Jesus claims here again to be God, a claim that no other religious leader has made, no one else. No one else did the miracles that he did, lived a sinless life like he did, died a substitutionary death uh, for the sins of those that would believe and rose again on the third day. Okay, it's also important to notice here uh, in verse six, when he uses, when he says, I am, okay, he's using I, the, the pronoun here, the personal pronoun. In our verses here, he six different times, he uses a personal pronoun. He either says, I, me, or my. Okay, and this is important. This is important for the believer because it's a really awesome thing to sort of contemplate here. We're not saved by some principle. We're not saved by a force, but by a person, by a person. Jesus did not say he knew the way. He knew the truth and he knew the life. He declared himself to absolutely be the embodiment of the way, the truth and the life. While answering all of life's questions, Jesus literally does not give his followers some sort of recipe. He doesn't give us a recipe. He doesn't, he doesn't give us a bunch of rules uh, uh, and rituals to follow. Instead, he gives us a relationship with himself, his plan all wrapped in the person of God himself. Jesus doesn't say, I am a way, a truth, and a life, but rather, I am the way. That is the only way. I am the truth. And there is only one truth. And I am the life. And that is the true life. Not being dead here spiritually on earth and not being dead eternally um, in hell. Being with him. Life starts today in Christ. Okay? All three of these concepts are very important. They're, they're, They're active and they're dynamic. The way brings us to God. Okay, the truth sets us free, makes us free. Okay, no longer a slave to sin. And the life, well, the life produces relationship. The life produces relationship. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. And without the life, there would be zero growing. Spiritual growth, real life. Evident, the embodiment of the spirit within us. And since every one of these words is really an important and astonishing statement, I want to spend just a few seconds on each one. So let's look at them closer. When Jesus says he's the way, Jesus is categorically saying that there's only one way 
and only one way is right. Okay. And every other way therefore is wrong. Jesus does not merely show the way he is himself. The way Jesus doesn't go. It's that away. Anybody ever given you directions? And then you forget anyone. And that's when you go, that's why we have GPS. That's been messed up before too, huh? Like, didn't tell me to turn at the oak tree. All right. So here's that thing. He doesn't just say that away. He says, I'm the way. I'm the way. Okay. He has a twofold meaning here when he says that. He is the way from God to us. And he is the way from us to God. It's the back and forth. Only through him. Incidentally, the fact that Jesus is the only way was a very important thing that the early believers understood and held on to. In the book of Acts, believers were known as being part of the way. There's six different times in, in, in the book of Acts that the community of believers were called the way. So what are you? The way. In Christ, because he is the only way. The way to heaven is not through a religious system. Or by following sets of religious rules, it's not within you and is not based on sincere efforts. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. Jesus says, I am the way. It is that one way. Man says, no, I think I know the way. Proverbs 14, 12 says, and the man's way is going to lead to death. Eternal separation. Because somebody is going to pay the price for our sins. And it's either going to be Christ the way or it is going to be us. Okay. So there's no other plan, but the person of Jesus Christ, there is no other way to get to the father, to heaven, unless we go through Christ about a decade ago. I remember, uh, Franklin Graham, uh, Billy Graham's son. I remember he was going to be one of the speakers at the national day of prayer in, in the Capitol in DC and he got the boot. Okay, they, they canned him. And why did they end up uh, uh, dismissing him from being the speaker? Well, several months before Franklin uh, said, Muslims need to repent and be saved or they won't go to heaven. Okay, he made that statement. In a response, a prominent politician stated, Franklin Graham's offense was expressing his belief that only Christians have God's ear, that Islam is evil, that Muslims and Hindus don't pray to the same God that he does. She also went on to quote another of Graham's statements that he made in which Franklin said, no elephant with a hundred arms can do anything for me. None of their 9,000 gods is going to lead me to the way salvation. We are fooling ourselves if we think we have some big kumbaya service all hold up our hands and it's going to be better in this world and we are going to go to heaven. It is not and it never will. The politician concluded with this when Franklin Graham uh, was dismissed from speaking. Her statement finished with, well, that didn't sit well with America, did it? And it didn't. It didn't what he said. But that doesn't negate the truth of what Franklin said. It doesn't change the truth. Feelings, emotions, sincerity, it doesn't change the truth. Okay, how did Franklin uh, Graham respond to, 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 to get in the boot from the National Day of Prayer? Literally, he says, I am who I am. I know that you can get to heaven. You cannot get to heaven, excuse me, through being a Buddhist or a Hindu. Muhammad only leads to the grave. Now, this is what I believe, and it is all found in Christ. And I will not apologize for the faith that I have 
in Jesus as my savior. And that is truly what we need to be anchored into. Listen, whenever someone says to me, and this happens to me rather frequently, someone will make a comment about the fact that um, uh, Christianity is not inclusive. Okay, well, I'll respond with something like this, because to say non-inclusive means no one's included. And I'll start with something like this. Well, hang on a second. John 637 says, and whoever comes, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Someone's included. Okay. Or how about John 317? Remember when you're a little kid going to church, whatever, John 316, everybody learned that verse. Remember? I mean, that was like the first, I was like an eight year old when I went to church first time. That's like the first verse I learned. John 316, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, should have everlasting life. Awesome. John 317. Awesome. John 3.17, Jesus stated right after that, that he said, whoever believes will not perish, but have eternal life. He literally says in verse 17, for God did not send his son, him speaking, into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He didn't come to condemn, he came to save. He came to include those that will believe the truth. Okay? But the inclusiveness of Christianity is based on God's term and not ours. It's based on God's terms. The Bible makes it clear, makes it clear. And what Bible makes clear runs counterculture to the sort of the pluralistic uh, uh, mantra of religious tolerance. The Bible states only Jesus, God, the son could offer himself as our sacrifice. He did what no one else could do. R.C. Sproul says it this way. Moses could meditate on the law. Muhammad could uh, brandish a sword. Buddha could give personal counsel. Confucius could offer some wise sayings. But none of these men was qualified to offer an atonement for the sins of the world. Closed. Okay? Only Jesus could offer himself. Only Christ himself. Because he was God in the flesh. Only Christ could offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins so that we could be saved. John, uh, 1 John 4.10 This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. That is love, what he has done for us. The Bible is filled with overwhelming evidence that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Matthew 7, 13, 14, Jesus made it clear that the way is narrow, restrictive, okay, for those who will be included. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, to hell, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it will be few. John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath remains on him. That means someone's going to pay for the sins. And if you have not confessed and knelt to Christ as your Lord and Savior for the atonement of your sins, our Wicked little hearts against a righteous God, our rebellion against him, then it will be paid. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. He shall live. First Corinthians three eleven. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid. And the foundation is Jesus Christ. First Timothy 2, 5. For there is only one God. There is only one mediator between God, between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Okay, very important 
Very important for us to understand this. The bottom line, Christ's words in verse 6 make it clear. The God of the Bible is utterly exclusive. Utterly exclusive. He has no competitors. And that's one of the kind of things, y'all, I'm just like this way. When people want to, ah, and they want to argue and stuff, and I'm defending the faith. He's got no competitor. It's not like I'm out selling a product competing against someone else with a product. What I possess is the only truth. What I possess is the only life. What I possess is the only way in Christ. When I share about the Lord, I'm sharing the truth, the way, and the life. And if someone else is thinking it's a, it's a competition and comes hard at me, they're spiritually dead, right? And what do you expect from spiritually dead? Spiritually dead. Just speak the loving truth because that's what we have. God has no competitors. We don't need to be worried about something. We don't. Focus. No competitors. He is the living and true God. There is no one like him in the universe. No one will share his glory that he has created for himself. Okay? And when Christ declares no one comes to the Father except through me, he means it. He means it. Okay? The issue is not our emotions or our preferences. Sincerity in religious matters is not enough. We don't... I mean, honestly... I don't doubt the sincerity of, 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 of Muslims or, or Hindus. I don't doubt their sincerity, but sincerity only matters when it's applied to the proper object. You can be sincerely wrong and you're still wrong. Okay? Believing the wrong thing doesn't make it right. Okay? All truth is narrow. All truth is narrow. There's only one avenue to salvation, there's only one avenue. With Christ removed, there is no redemption, no truth, no everlasting way, and no possible way to the Father. Second thing Jesus says here is he's the truth. The truth. In Scripture, truth is used two different ways. Okay, Truth is contrasted with false, and then truth also as genuine, the opposite of fake. Jesus is authentic, he is saying, and he is trustworthy. We look at Jesus, we come face to face with the certainty and the reality. The Bible describes truth not just as something that is, that is intellectual, it's also a moral dimension to it. There is a moral dimension to it. John 3.21, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. See, if you live by the truth, you are in the light and Christ is the light. Sad, but it seems that truth truly in our society today is one of the, the most rare commodities. Some will say, what's the rarest element out there? Yeah, it's truth. It, it literally is. It's a sad part that's happened here, okay? But without truth, clarity and consistency, okay? Absolute moral truth. We as a people have reduced ourselves to doing what seems right, what feels good, what produces the, the, the least resistance, and what provides the greatest personal fulfillment. But that is not truth. Listen, it's not mean, as I've been told. It's not narrow-minded, it is not mean and is not narrow-minded to say Jesus is the way and he is the truth, okay? I would suggest it's just the opposite. You're being mean. You are not being loving. You're being narrow-minded by not telling people that Jesus is the only way and that he is the only truth and he is the only life, okay? It's a very exclusive thing because it implies an object and a standard, Truth applies an, uh, implies an object and a standard, and that is Christ, okay? If you're a believer, 
What we have to do is we have to strip away everything else and focus on the object of our true affections, Christ. Let the feelings and the emotions, you are anchored when the wind blows, when the storm comes. You are not going to be swept away staying focused on the truth. You might feel like you're going to be swept away, but focus on the truth and you will not be. Peel it back. Whatever was true biblically a a thousand, two thousand years ago, it still is today. Hebrews 13.8 states, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Okay? And finally, Christ said that he's the life. Throughout the gospel of John, the term life describes the principle of like uh, spiritual vitality. Okay? Um, We are dead without him. Paul goes into that extensively in Ephesians 2. We become alive when we surrender ourselves to him. John 5, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but passes from death to life. What a beautiful thing. Okay, And it isn't just this, I will be in heaven one day. We have passed from death, spiritually dead till I was 28 years old, into life. I now live in the realm of the true life. I know the way because my Savior's taking me and I know the truth because I have been awakened by his spirit, okay? It is really, really, really important that we we keep this in our focus. In this life, all we need truly is found in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. The life that we need, the spiritual life, it is in Christ. So a lot of times when you look at a passage like this, you're going as a believer, you're going, yep, 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 I've heard all this before. And it's, what do we do with this? And I would just implore you with this, okay? If you're a believer, you've now been reminded. You're now being reminded. It's a refresher course of why we can give thanks all the time. And how is that? It's Christ. Why? Because he is everything that we need. The way, the truth, the life. Okay, today, tomorrow, and for an eternity. But here's the thing. If you do not claim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I truly urge you, look to the Lord. Place your faith in him. He is the only way. Verse six says, no one comes to the Father except through me. The little word except means apart from. Apart from him, there is no other way to be saved. I have people say to me, well, if God's love then why doesn't everybody go to heaven? Well, I always respond this way. The love of God is just one of his biblical attributes. It's one, just one of his attributes. God is also just, he is righteous and he is holy. So with that, the Bible is clear. Man has sinned and created a chasm between man and holy, righteous God for the wages of sin is death. We all know we're going to physically die, but that's not the thing to be troubled over. Okay. Because of sin, the body will fail and we will die. Nobody debates that. Okay? The wages of sin must be paid. The wages of sin must be paid. And here is the thing. It is not the physical death that we should be concerned about. It is the second death, the eternal death. Okay? And it comes down to this. The wages of sin must be paid. Because if God of love cannot let sin remain. If sin remained, then what would heaven become? You know where I'm going with that. And that is the truth. It would no longer be holy and righteous and God would no longer be just. His word is clear. 
It must be paid. Either you put place your faith in, in God, the son, Jesus Christ as the perfect sacrifice. And he pays the price of your sins, death on the cross, or you pay the price one way or another. You pay the price. And the payment of that is eternal separation, second death. Christ is the way through his sinless life, his perfect sacrifice, his glorious resurrection. Christ himself, the way, bridged the chasm between the believer and God. He provides the path and he is the only one that has reconciled us to the Father. He is the truth. Okay, that's it, folks. There is no other truth to stand on. When it's all over, only one thing is going to matter. Who did you say Jesus Christ was? In the words of Christ, who do you say that I am? That is the one truth that will matter, and he is the life. He gives us a new life today. He gives us eternal life, everlasting in heaven with him. You cannot get to heaven by trusting in yourself. The only way to come is through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Isn't that awesome? He suffered the righteous one for the unrighteous. Why? For one reason, so that we may be with him forever. Now that's something to get our emotions focused on, okay? The word believe here when he says believe in me is important. It is an imperative, folks. It is an imperative. We must believe, we must rely, we must trust, we must focus on the truth, okay? The truth of John 14, 6 answers the three questions that everyone has. How can I be saved? He's the way. How can I be sure he is the truth and how can I be satisfied? The only place anyone is ever gonna find true satisfaction is in the life, Jesus Christ. And believers, you know what I'm talking about here. The only satisfaction that we have, because this world's messed up. And it's messed up. The only satisfaction we will have, no matter what is going on in our lives, is in the life, Jesus Christ. Are you saved? Do you believe that you are a sinner, that God's love and forgiveness is only through repentance and trusting in Jesus Christ as your sacrifice? Then you are now part of the kingdom, the everlasting kingdom. You are a child of God. And that is something to always be thankful for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we praise you. We, we give you glory, Lord. But, oh, Lord, Lord, we are weak emotional creatures that too often just lose sight of what is at the core. And that is Christ, the gloriousness of Christ. Lord, may you encourage us. May you, may you, may you help us. May your spirit help us to, to focus on that, Lord, to strip away all of the other things that, that just rough us up, Lord, and that we can focus on the gloriousness of Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, that we could rest in that peace that you have given us, Lord, knowing that there is a plan and a place. Lord, you are an awesome, awesome God, a God of love but a righteous and a just God. And we praise you for that. And Lord, I ask now for the believer that we would just be encouraged in this and that we would truly be a light in a dark world. And Lord, I pray for those that do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, that Lord, they will hear the words of Jesus and they will ponder. 
They will ponder this physical existence, but they will also ponder spiritual existence. They will ponder the purpose of life and what the afterlife may be. And Lord, may your spirit draw them. May your spirit draw them to the hope, the joy, and the peace that is found in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.